Let's open up our, our Bibles, and if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be in Mark chapter, uh, the sermon will be in Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through chapter 3, verse 12. But this morning I am going to read starting in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. So I'm going to read starting in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer your cleansing. Offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak, in, in their, uh, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to a paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and, and he was teaching them. And, he, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in, the house, in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Uh, right, right before um, 
right before my wedding, myself and my groomsmen, we were all tucked away in a side room of the church, waiting for the ceremony to start. Guests were coming in and being seated and what have you. And, and our photographer came back to snap a few pictures of us all together waiting, as happens, you know, in, at weddings. We took a few pictures, and then across the old Sunday school room, I saw it. This famous headshot painting of Jesus. You know the one I'm talking about? If you, it's the same one that was on the giant old Bible in my parents' sitting room that no one actually sat in. You know, you know what I'm saying? Side angle of Jesus. Pasty white skin. Blue eyes. Flowing brown hair with that like perfect wave to it. His beard, just, I mean, like, like the commercials you see today for men's beard care, I mean, his beard is just perfectly groomed, like manicured and like oiled or something. It's, it's amazing. And so I went over to it, and I stood next to the painting, and I put my arm around the painting, and I said, hey, take, take some pictures. And I took a picture with my... Homeboy groomsman, Jesus, right? Looking longingly at him like, hey. It was my Facebook profile picture for a while, I think. Of course, we know that Jesus didn't really look like that. I mean, I hope you do know that Jesus didn't really look like that. And it is just a painting, but I think it reveals a deeper reality to us. That we have a tendency to make God out to be who we want him to be rather than searching out who he says he is. You've heard someone say things like, I like to think that Jesus is like... dot, dot, dot. Or... I don't think God is like this. I like to think of him like that. Or, well, my Jesus is fill in the blank. But of course, we serve a God who, from the beginning, has insisted on revealing himself to us as he wants to be revealed. He revealed himself to Abraham. He revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. He revealed himself as a cloud over the Holy of Holies, and he revealed himself in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, as a human being. Perhaps the real problem with that false image of Jesus is that it encourages us to create whatever idea of Jesus we like rather than seeking out who Jesus is, how he decided to reveal himself in his word. I don't mean to say that we have no idea who Jesus is, or that you have no idea, or that I have no idea. And the Jews of Jesus' day that we see and we read about in this passage and in Scripture, they knew about the Christ, 
They knew about this anointed one, this Messiah that was to come. And yet, and yet their, their idea of who he was was just far enough off that so many of them missed him when he was walking and standing right in front of them. And just like that painting of Caucasian Jesus, elements that were more cultural than biblical had crept in. And so is Jesus, a good moral teacher. See, a really nice guy who never skips a chance to help others, who only says a kind word to his neighbor. See, usually our misconceptions are not totally off but are skewed in some ways. Before you get too worried, here's the hopeful thing. Jesus is calling his disciples to follow him. As we'll see in this passage, Jesus calls his disciples to follow him, and then they discover who he is. We may be unaware, even for us who have been believers for a long time, even for us who have been believers for decades, we may be unaware even now of ways in which our idea of Jesus is not quite who he revealed himself to be. So we must continue to follow Jesus. We must continue to check our idea against the source. And while Simon and Levi and the others saw Jesus revealed in the flesh... We get to see him revealed in Scripture whenever we want. We can open up this book and we can read. And who, who Jesus' followers believe he is, it matters. And if we are Jesus' followers, then it matters to us who he is. And so as we look at these two scenes, so we look at two sections, the, the first half and the second half of this passage, We're going to find out, you may find out, that that Jesus may be more than you imagine, and that Jesus may be different than you assume. Jumping in to verse 21, what we see is Jesus going into the synagogue to teach. And it says that they were astounded by his teaching, right? But what really surprises them is when a man with an unclean spirit comes in and kind of picks a fight with Jesus, if you will. Jesus rebukes him, tells him to be silent, to come out. And and you know what happens? The unclean spirit does. The unclean spirit obeys. It has no other choice but to obey Jesus. And it says that the people were amazed and they wondered, what is this? A new teaching with authority? And they they recognized that he was not just another teacher. He was more. There was power. It's not merely another teacher. Perhaps he's a miracle worker. And I wonder, though, as I read this, I wonder if, That question, what is this, if it's actually the wrong question to be asking? See, today we read about Jesus and what he's done in the Gospels and what he teaches. 
We ask, what is this? What, is these, what are these good deeds he's done that I should mimic? What are these morals he promotes that I should live by? And those aren't unimportant questions, but there is one question that I think is more important. There's one vital question we must ask first. That question is, who is this? Who is this? You see, look, look what happens as we continue to read. Jesus, he heals Simon's mother-in-law, and he heals many who are sick, but the next day he rises really early, and he goes out away from the masses, away from the people, away from the herds of sick, the herds of demon-possessed. And when they find him and they, they tell him that, people are, that the people are looking for him, Jesus doesn't care about what kind of fame he has. He doesn't care about what kind of platform he has. More surprisingly, his concern isn't even that every single sick person be healed. He says, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Remember, Mark 1, verse 15, Jesus said, He said, repent and believe in the gospel. That was his message. The kingdom of God is a hand. Repent. Believe. Jesus isn't just another great teacher or even a benevolent miracle worker. Jesus, Jesus isn't just another prophet even. In the next few stories, we discover that his intent isn't merely to reform people's conduct, nor is it to provide fixes for their physical or their temporal problems. It's so much more. Look at this in verses 40 through 45. He heals a man with leprosy, right? But he isn't only healed. Did you notice that? He cleanses him. He instructs him, go to the priest. Go to the priest. Show yourself. Offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. Not for a proof to Jesus, not for a proof to the man, for a proof to them. For he's actually already been cleansed by Christ. The temporal ceremonial cleanness isn't Jesus' highest priority, or else he wouldn't have allowed this leper to come close to him in the first place. Because that would have made him unclean. It's not the healing alone that's important to Jesus or else he would have just spoken him healed, right? He would have just said, uh, you're healed. Yeah, please get that leprosy away from me. But instead, what, did he, what does he do? He reaches out and he touches him. Can you imagine a man with leprosy for I don't know how long who, who everyone has ran from who literally has not felt the touch of another human being probably for years. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus reaches out and touches him. He doesn't have to touch him to heal him, but he does. Because the man needs 
touch. Jesus hasn't come to merely reform our behavior or to do nice thing, things. A holy God has come into the world to touch that which is unholy and unclean and to transform it into something else that is holy to him. Clean in a deeper sense. Clean in a sense deeper than just the skin. To do more than we can imagine. That second story illustrates the same point in a different way. It's a famous story, right? Jesus is in a house. He's teaching. It's crowded. Some guys have a paralyzed friend. They want him to be healed, but the crowd is too, too thick to get him through. And so they climb up on the roof, which is a pretty bold move. They tear the roof away. I wonder what that was like as Jesus is teaching. And he's like feeling the dust coming down on his head. That's how I imagine it anyways. And, and he's going, okay, heal. all right, I see what's going to happen here. I'm ready for that. They lower this man down. And clearly, the guy is there so that he can walk again, right? And the point of them lowering him down to Jesus is so that he could walk again. And what does Jesus say to him? Your sins are forgiven. I'm wondering what the paralyzed guy is thinking at that point, right? Like, dude, like that was a little scary, them hauling me up on the roof and then the whole like lowering me down thing. Um, And I finally got here in front of you so that you could say, get up and walk. And you said, your sins are forgiven. What? But it's the scribes that Mark talks about, isn't it? It's what the scribes are saying in their hearts that is so important in this story. The scribes, they're incensed. How can this guy forgive sins? How could he dare even say that? The problem wasn't misunderstanding what Jesus could do. For they've seen him heal people. The problem was misunderstanding who Jesus was. Jesus knows what they're thinking and he calls them out. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. Obviously, it's get up and walk that's more difficult. Because I can see this man lying here, unable to walk. And so Jesus says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And the man gets up and walks. Here's the point. Jesus may be more than you imagine. In fact, I guarantee he is. I guarantee that you have no idea all of who Jesus is. Friends, he knows your leprous heart. He knows that you're paralyzed and lame spiritually and emotionally and relationally because of your sin and because of the sins of others. Do you trust him enough to rise and pick up your bed and walk. He's not merely a good teacher, nor is he merely a benevolent healer. Jesus is God in the flesh, reaching out and touching our unclean and broken lives. He's come to heal our paralysis. He's come not just to call us to repentance, but to make a way for forgiveness. 
He has power to actually change and transform you. Whatever you walked in here with, whatever paralysis you feel like you have, whatever leprosy is in your life, I want you to know that Jesus is reaching out to touch you right now through his word, through his spirit, to transform and heal you. You thought Jesus was going to give you some tips for life or maybe, maybe fix a few issues that you have, but he's more than you can imagine. That's not good enough for him. He's here to transform your identity. He's here to transform who you are. Do you remember this section started? How it started? Jesus calling James and John and Simon. They were fishermen, right? And Jesus said, follow me. They're working on their boats. Jesus is walking by. He says, hey, follow me. What? Jesus says, I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus changes who these men are to be more than they could ever imagine. They just thought they were fishermen, just regular, ordinary, everyday fishermen. And Jesus said, no, I am changing who you are. I am am more than you can imagine, and you will be more. You will do more than you can imagine through me. Make no mistake, when you follow Jesus, it doesn't just tweak a few things. You don't get a couple of tips for life. No, Jesus isn't satisfied with that. He intends to change your very identity. All of who you are. You think this is who you are. Who you came in here as, that's who you are. There's nothing you can do about it. And you're right, there is nothing you can do about it. But Jesus is more than you imagine. And there is something he can do about it. But there's another side to this story. The next scene, we see Jesus calling Levi a tax collector. You know, it's one thing to call an unclean, everyday, uneducated fisherman. It's another thing to call a low-life sinner like a tax collector. And we see that immediately Jesus is eating with these tax collectors and sinners in Levi's house. The scribes of the Pharisees, they come along, and they see it, and they question, how, how could he hang out with this riffraff? How could he do that? And Jesus makes this profound statement about his purpose, right? He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The, the, the sick don't need a doctor, or the, the well don't need a doctor, the sick do. There would be nothing new there, there is nothing new or profound with Jesus saying that he came to save sinners. The Pharisees would have agreed, yeah, the Christ saves sinners. But what's different is that the assumptions of the, pe- of the people is that Jesus came to save sinners who clean themselves up well enough. What's different, what's shocking here is that Jesus is saying, no, I came to save sinners as 
sinners. I came to save them while they are still sinners. You see, the Pharisees had rules upon rules that they followed and told others to follow in order to seek to be righteous in their own effort. They went even beyond the law, beyond the law of Moses, and they made other people do the same. They told other people they ought to do the same. They thought, they thought that Christ would come to save them because they sufficiently cleaned themselves up. They were good enough to be saved. They were doing better than everyone else. And that's what Jesus means when he says righteous in this passage. He doesn't, you can almost hear it with a bit of sarcasm in his voice, right? If you think you're well enough on your own, if you think you're righteous enough on your own, I didn't come to save those people. I came to save the people that, that knew they were sick that knew they were unrighteous, that knew that they couldn't do it on their own and they needed me. That's who I've come to save. Mark illustrates this in two scenes with two of maybe the most pious and religious acts that one can follow, fasting and Sabbath keeping. In both these scenes, they question Jesus about the disciples' behavior. Why are they not fasting? Why are they not keeping the Sabbath? But what you need to understand is in each of one of these scenes, what they're asking actually is something that goes beyond what the law of Moses prescribes. When they say, well, why isn't he fasting? Well, there's only actually one fast a year that's required. But the Pharisees, they fasted all these extra times just to prove how righteous they were. When, when the, the, they question, why did the disciples reach out and pluck, grains of, of, uh, pluck grain in their hand and eat it on the Sabbath? That's work. That actually goes beyond the law of Moses. If you look back into the law of Moses, it says that that's actually okay to do. That if you're hungry on the Sabbath, you can pluck small amounts just for yourself to eat. And that's not breaking the Sabbath. So the question isn't, why do your disciples get away with not following God's law? No, Jesus followed the law perfectly. And he commanded the same. The question is, don't they have to do all these other things in order to be good Jews? In order to be religious enough? In order to be righteous enough? Don't you have to get yourself all righteous up? To come to God? And Jesus says, no, no, you need to be with me. You need to be with me. Our self-righteous glory is rags compared to the glory of Christ. The bridegroom, being with the bridegroom, that's what matters. Jesus tells two short parables and then he gives one last big story to kind of bring it home. In the two parables, Jesus talks about new cloth stitched into old clothes and new wine and old wineskins. And both of these are, are kind of concepts that maybe are outside of our frame of reference. Uh, but perhaps you're like me and when you were a kid and you would get holes in the knees of your jeans, you, your mom would take those uh, denim patches. Do you ever have those? You, you know, we, were, we weren't, uh, when I was little, we weren't, uh, you know, real well off, you know, so you couldn't just, you know, oh, you got a hole in your jeans, let's go buy you new jeans. No, she had these denim patches, and the patches were never quite the same quality 
or, or the same like uh, consistency of the denim of your jeans, right? And they were stiff and they were kind of like, you know, your jeans are all broken in when you, once you got holes in them, but they were like all stiff. And so she, you know, iron them on or stitch them on or whatever. And then you're walking around, the rest of your jeans are comfortable, but your knees are like, you can't bend them quite, you know, because it's like so stiff on your knees. It just doesn't work very well. Gives you a couple extra days, but that's about it. Similarly, but even more drastically, this is both of Jesus' examples. You see the new cloth would shrink and it would tear away from the old cloth. The old cloth was already uh, shrunk. It had already shrunk. And so if you began to clean that and you used it and then the new cloth shrunk and it would tear away from the old cloth that you stitched it on. Or the new wine, if you've, if you, I don't know if you know this, but when wine ferments, it, it, there's a gas that's released and it expands. I had a, a pastor friend who used to brew his own root beer, like, like really brew it. And every once in a while, he'd have these bottles that sealed off. And every once in a while, the gas would get too much. And he'd be sitting upstairs, and all of a sudden, it'd sound like a gun went off. And one of these bottles would explode, and glass would shatter everywhere because the gas was too much inside of it. And so that's what would happen inside of these old wineskins. It would expand, and, and the old wine... The old wineskin couldn't expand to meet the needs of the new wine that was fermenting and and they would explode. And Jesus is saying he's he's doing something that's not altogether different. It's not altogether different. But at the same time, it's new. In fact, he wants to restore things back to God's intentions rather than man's inventions. And from the beginning, our inclination is to try to invent a way to save ourselves or at least to help in some way along the process to add to what God has commanded us because we've got we to prove to God that, that we're good enough, right? We've got to prove to God that, that we're worth saving or that we've done something to help in that process. To take God's word and to shift it just a little bit so that we're not completely dependent on God, at least in our heads. And every other religion says, do these works and God will save you. But Jesus says, I came to save people who know there's no works that they can do to save themselves. This leads up to this climactic scene where a man with a withered hand comes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And they're watching because they want to catch Jesus doing something that they don't think he ought to do. They want to catch him, you know, healing doing work on the Sabbath. So you can imagine they're sitting there just just waiting with bated breath. What's he going to do? He can't resist healing these people. And Jesus says, he knows, he knows already. And so he he just calls it what it is. He says, hey, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? And Jesus is echoing the very words of the law of Moses from Deuteronomy 30, 15, and 19. The law is to be life-giving, not life-taking. But these guys, their hearts are hard. and Jesus upholds the law, even surpasses it. No one answers him because they don't know how to answer him. They've rejected Jesus. And thus they've rejected the true intention of the law for their own inventions. And so what does Jesus do? He heals the man. And what do they do? They go out and they plot against Jesus. They've traded the one who has the power to heal 
in exchange for their own religion that is withered and lifeless. Friends, it all starts with understanding who Jesus says that he is. Here's the point. Jesus may be different than you assume. He calls not the self-righteous but the sinner and tells them to follow him. He calls not those who take pride in their position but those who take joy in his presence. He comes to you not as what you think you ought to be but as you really are, a rebel sinner who has consistently rejected him. He comes to unwither your life, to give you what you truly hunger for, that you might feast with him for eternity. That's why he came. Will you continue to come to him as you think you ought to be? Or will you come to him as he has decided to reveal himself and receive him on his terms? Even if elements of who he is and what he says make you feel uncomfortable, or upset, even if following him means that the old sinful life needs to change for a new one, will you come to him? See, the problem with the painting of white Jesus, right? With whatever idea, the, 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 the problem with that is that whatever idea of who Jesus is that we invented in our heads isn't actually who Jesus says he is. It's historically inaccurate, sure. But that's not the biggest issue. The deeper issue that I want to get at is this. We have a tendency to create a version of God in our own image instead of in his image. To think we get to decide who our Jesus is. This is my Jesus. He's like this. And we find ourselves following a God that is very agreeable to our own thoughts and opinions because, in fact, it's just an ideal version of ourselves that we're following. And it's not Jesus. Bottom line is this. We don't decide who Jesus is. We discover it. We discover who he is. And praise God because he is more than you imagine and he is different than you assume. In this side of eternity, we will always be discovering more and more about him. We can never know him fully, but you can know him truly. Before you get too anxious, before you get too worried about, oh, do I know Jesus? How can I know Jesus what do I not understand about Jesus that I don't even realize? I want you to remember this. If you want to know Jesus more, it starts with a response to one simple command. You see it twice in our text. Follow me. His disciples got up and followed him. And he showed them who he was. If you follow Christ, he will show you who he is.